Um, we have a, a distinguished panel of guests with us. Have you? Are you sure about that? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and uh, maybe starting with Luke, I'll just get you to introduce yourselves and then people will have some idea of who you are and, and what you do. Hi, I'm uh, Luke Walton. I'm the Culture Programme Manager for Bible Society, which means that I'm running the team doing mission work here in the UK in politics, media, education, and I run the arts, which means I'm responsible for the pitch, which is the short film competition we do. I thought I'd just get a plug-in for that straight away. There you are. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wilmot. I'm a vicar of a town centre, Anglican Church, quite a large one, um, in Reading, and I'm not quite sure why I'm here at all. <laughs> You'll find out. You're fine. You're very welcome. Okay, Thank James, you. I'm mentioned earlier on. And I'm Sandra Tebbett, so I'm uh, part of the fundraising team for Bible Society, and I look after our partner churches and festivals. So that's what I do. Thank you. Okay, so now you know who everybody is. We have a stack of questions to get through. Uh, the mobile phone has been going slightly mad, uh, but that's great. And I know one or two people have said, I don't do texting, can't do texting, can I use the roving mic? <laughs> uh, and that's absolutely fine. Where are, where are people with roving mics? There's Peter over there, and Rob? Rob at the back. So if, you, if you'd like to put a hand up for a question, please put your hand up and uh, we'll come around to you in a second. But let's start with a question that we had via the text. Um, first question. Luke, you're not texting questions, are you? No, I'm not. I've got oh. the phone that's receiving them still. <laughs> Good. We've had plenty. And, and thank you to the person that said thank you for inviting me. Um, I don't know if that was from Dallas. Or <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome as well. Well, but we have help now. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so the first question I've got here, uh, these are not in order and we're not going to get through all of them, but uh, here we go. Uh, how does knowledge move from the head to the heart? <laughs> well, I'm happy to respond, but I do hope you will step in. Uh, knowledge moves from the head to the heart through the will. And that sounds a little strange to many people because they think the problem is to get to the will and you go through the heart. Knowledge that stays in the head is blocked by the set of the will, either positively against it or just negatively, uh, not wanting to go there. Now, a part of the difficulty here is caused by the fact that when we think of knowledge being in the head, we don't really mean knowledge. We mean something like being able to recite. But you can recite what you don't know. And when you know something, it grips you deeply. And you can still oppose it. Or you can still refuse to allow it to channel into the other parts of your personality. Now on your sheet, on the back page, you have some circles there I'll talk about later. But very often, the barrier is in our body or in our social relationships, and it keeps the knowledge from taking possession of our will, and therefore, there's no expression in action, which is faith. See, faith acts, and when you don't have the possession of the will uh, by knowledge, then nothing happens. 
Um, and of course, this is a big problem for human beings because their will is set against God. And that has settled into their bodies and into their facial expressions and all the parts of the person. And that blocks knowledge off. Perhaps it helps to say, though it's often stunning to people to say, you don't necessarily believe what you know. You don't necessarily believe what you know. What old-fashioned Christians talked about as being under conviction was actually a situation where someone was refusing to believe what they knew. They were convicts of knowledge, but they were set against it. So it's really important, I think, to understand the role of will in moving from the head to the heart. Now, sometimes it helps just to be clearer in your head. So a lot of times the problem is confusion. And that's where we need, above all, the teacher, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word, other individuals who can help us get very clear about what's going on. Um, I would say, um, I think that's quite a good answer. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, and um, <laughs> I think experience is, you know, an element here to move. So you take what you do know and act on it mm -hmm. through the will, mm -hmm. and that will move you forward. So it's not, I'm going to suddenly go from here to here. It's I'm going to take the things I do know and act on them. Usually in the company of the others, we call you know, church often, but it doesn't always the, the, um, what goes on in the church. But in the company of others, we start to step forward. And you take the little bit there is in there and act on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So it's the showing up very often on this um, and being able to move forward. I mean, I could say more, mm -hmm. but that's a start. I wonder if there's a, a thing about one of the spiritual disciplines of, of the, the church, probably one of the forgotten ones, of Bible meditation, where because we know verses from the Bible and they're in our heads, but they're not lived out in our experience. And it's... Um, helpful to revisit this whole thing of, of actually taking maybe a sentence or just a few words and chewing over it and praying over it mm -hmm. and, and living with it until it goes that very long distance of, of the 18 inches between head and heart, until it becomes something that you actually then agree with at a much, at a much deeper level and becomes something that you're then acting out um, in your not just in your prayer life, but, but in, in, in the, the whole of your life, in the ministry part of your life, and you're caring for others part of your life. So it becomes something that you, you can then build the foundation of your action on because that truth which you had read, is, you can now live out. I, I wonder if it's about asking 
the questions we ask as well. The conversation I was having with Dallas before was about my father-in-law, who often says to me, um, uh, Luke, I wish I had your faith, um, but I, I just... Um, I could really do with God, but I just can't take that leap of faith, um, which, as Dallas pointed out, is, is perhaps a kind of indication to me that he's implying that um, he's not quite as needy as me. Um, I'm obviously needy enough to have to leap into yes. the blind darkness. Um, and, and I do think it's probably... I was reminded about that the slip for me in, in, in knowledge and belief in, in Christ uh, started when I was seven. I brought up in a totally uh, secular home, I came home from school and we'd been taught about a story about uh, some people who'd managed to stand on a roof and drop some, a friend through the roof, which living in a mm. sort of between the walls semi in North London left me with very strange images of people sliding off roofs. Um, but I came home and uh, said to my mum, who was this Jesus person? And she said, well, some people think he was uh, the son of God and some people think he was just a good man. And my mum, of course, knew all things, so I said, what do you believe? And she said, I believe he was just a good man. And I was thinking back to the story in which, which Jesus had forgiven some, somebody something. He'd done something much more extraordinary, it seemed to me, than just good men did. And so I decided she must be wrong, and therefore, in my own mind, Jesus can't have existed at all. Um, she must be wrong, which is the wrong step. I didn't manage to make the whole C.S. Lewis leap there. Um, but I was only seven. And I think it was, it, was, it, was when, it was when I was 15 and actually people sat me down and I realised Jesus really had existed. It was like kind of an explosion. I think one of the problems for Head to Heart is that our society has just accepted that knowledge says that maybe he didn't even exist. Right. Um, that is how far mm -hmm. the, the divide has gone. The gap between us and the culture is mm -hmm. huge. That's a part of the power of learned contempt. See, it becomes a social force. It's so important that we recognize what it is. I think the other thing about knowledge as well is uh, if we're going to get it from our head to our heart, we have to let it form our character and, and the way that we live our lives. Because unless it's affecting who we are, it can't be real knowledge because we're not acting it out um, in our lives. And I hope you'll be speaking about that in some of your later mm -hmm. talks. Yes. We'll try. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, can we move on to another question? Uh, how do we establish the public validity of Christian knowing as against a secular knowing? How do we do it? How do we establish yep. the public right. validity of Christian Well, knowledge? we begin with coming to understand knowledge because knowledge is essentially public. When you know something, you put yourself in the public because now you're out there in the world with what you know and you are saying, among other things, anyone who wishes to know can follow the evidence. So... The real problem is that we don't understand knowledge today. You go to your universities here, I will guarantee you, you will hear very few discussions of what knowledge is. And this is partly because it is so politically explosive. And many people on faculties don't want to discuss it because even to say things like, I know, is viewed by many as an ego trip. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they, if they don't know, they shouldn't be in the classroom. Right? 
or they should be sitting down there learning something instead of standing up talking. So the assumptions are contradictory, but you see, that's a part of the sensitivity. We need to talk about knowledge around our churches. We need to see the role of knowledge in the Bible. And I gave a few verses on the sheet, but it's just powerful. Just do good old inductive Bible study. Get your concordance out. See how often, for example, the prophets will say on behalf of God, I have done such and such that you may know. You may know. I mean, it, you will be surprised at how much there is about knowledge. I'm hoping after our discussions here, you'll be comfortable with it and recognize what's happened. But we are the ones now, by we I mean those of us who are Christians in whatever capacities, above all pastors, have to carry the responsibility of helping people know knowledge and understand what it is. So that's why I give you a simple definition. You don't have to accept it. You don't have to accept anything I say, but you can think. Of, you can start thinking about it. Yeah, Thomas, you say in your book, um, which I can't remember the title of. I think James On has which? a copy of French. Yeah, not that book. The other book. Divine conspiracy, and you, you cite. Um, two Harvard students who are both in the same moral learning class and yet the, the girl in the end leaves because she's doing cleaning jobs for the other right. students and this other student is making uh, wrong propositions to her and he's getting A grades in the moral class. Right. So he has the knowledge but yet it's not affecting the way that he is. Uh, whereas, uh, and, the, and the young woman I believe left the course because she could not cope mm -hmm. with that anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a fascinating story. Let, let me just say, it's a story that appeared in the, what we call the Chronicle of Higher Education in the United States. The back page is a page where people occasionally talk about things that really matter. And uh, this young lady uh, was on work fellowship, as we call it. And so she had to clean rooms, uh, partly to pay her way through and the people around her treated her with contempt because she had to work. And then this one young man that she had classes with uh, repeatedly propositioned her for sex when she was cleaning his rooms. And um, so she comes in and says, what in the world is this about? How do you explain the fact? And then she brings up issues like most of Hitler's leading people were highly educated people with PhDs and so on. And this was put in terms of how you connect the intellect with the character. And that's a real issue to which the university today has no response. It isn't they have no answer, they have no response. Uh, they don't try to answer it. Um, I think because, well, there are various reasons for that. Uh, they simply have no response to it. Um, now, do we have a response to it? I think yes, we do. But we have to recognize there are two dimensions. One is what is in the intellect and what isn't in the intellect. Uh, you can be sure that no one at Harvard University ever sat down with this young man and explained to him that what he was doing 
was the kind of thing that degraded human, human beings and that it was a genuinely disgusting sort of thing to do. Uh, almost no one goes into that. So there's a problem with what is and what is not in the intellect. But then there is the problem also of connecting what is in the intellect to real life. Now, my own view is that we are very, at least in our country, we don't want to do that uh, because our assumption is that whatever there is to morality, uh, people have to come to it on their own. So you would never teach someone about these things. This is what I call, in a, in a terribly difficult book I'm about to finish, The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. You don't teach moral knowledge in higher education. You could never give a test with a question like, it's wrong to lie and grade people on it because it's not regarded as knowledge. And so there's that problem. You see, we don't carry through with the teaching. Um, if I could add, um, keeping the public space you know, there so we can you know, speak into it is important. And the work Bible Society is into, um, we have the horror, really, is that the public square will be you know, open uh, to us still, and often it isn't. We don't want the church, we don't want people of faith. Um, in the Houses of Parliament, we occasionally have people say, we want to talk about an ethical issue, but we don't want religion in on it. They will say, please don't talk in religious terms. So there's that. But we, the worry that Anne and I have, and many of us have here, is that the public square will be open to us, but that we won't have anything meaningful to say into it. And I think mm -hmm. that's so helpful with the talks we're having, mm -hmm. is because that's the bit. It's all very well to keep it open, but have we got something intelligent to say into it? And I think the teachings we're having, so the arts, um, uh, Theater. I went to a, a, a play a day or two ago, just before you, you, you were here, a big play in a theater. This happens so often. It was a, 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 a play on philosophy, mm -hmm. and a teacher in philosophy was one of the actors. So he was acting out this part, and he's acting out a part in front of a class, talking about all the great philosophers, and he breaks into tears because he can't understand philosophy and himself. He understands about the great academics and theorists, but he can't understand how that impacts him. So there on the stage in a theater, all these issues are in there if only it's, we are able to speak into them. And the arts particularly is a field so open, and Nigel ought to say a word on this. Please, please, come, come and sit on the chair. No, madam. You can sit. Uh, Luke, you are the weakest link. <laughs> <laughs> Who loves you, baby? Just push the chair so it falls together. Don't slide the chair. It does. Go on. I think these two questions connect. Really, these two first questions hugely. 
Dallas, you mentioned that we've been pushed out, the church has been pushed out of the public square. But didn't the church, the evangelical church in America, and to a greater extent we following it here at the end of the 19th century, vacate the public square? So largely it is Christian talking to Christian in the subculture. Mm -hmm. And often emotionally having given up the Greek rationale which we were all brought up with, surely when the head and the heart are working from the gut or the viscera for the glory of God, watch out world, where is the Hebrew mind? You've been quoting the prophets. When I came to faith, I came to an evangelical church that mostly talked of text out of context, and it had not it been for Labrie and Francis Schaeffer who gave us permission to think. So we've become very existential, feely, feely, touchy Jesus, but we've given up on thinking, and we haven't developed thinking to the birthing place, the groaning and the travailing place, the Hebrew belly. So I want us to be back in the public square, head, heart, and mind, for the glory of God. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, I sense that question kind of resonating around the audience, so let's just use the roving mic if anyone wants to put a, uh, put a hand up and carry on with that question. I'm happy to do that, Peter. Yeah, thank you. Um, don't think it's not just a danger in university circles, but also in church circles, that we can divorce uh, knowledge from changed character uh, because we've probably lost the emphasis on discipleship and seeing changed lives. And it's very tempting for us to listen to the best speakers around uh, the world on the internet and not actually see changed lives being modelled to us and seeing how knowledge does lead to changed character in teaching. Does that make sense? Anyone like to respond to that? What was the question? Sorry, can we? Sorry. So, um, I just do you think we need to, do you think we need to emphasize, uh, emphasize that teaching needs to be modeled to us as much as a taught verbally? Uh, and in some sense, we've lost the emphasis on discipleship that models. Uh, we have indeed. Godliness. Yes. That is, if I may say so, that is partly due to the fact that we no longer think in terms of forming character. Character can only be formed by being modeled. But it will not be modeled if it's not based on careful thinking. And that's the part that we have left out. And uh, is the part of the story that uh, Nigel was referring to is the fact that both on the theological left and the theological right, the church abandoned knowledge. On the left, it abandoned knowledge to protect itself from what it thought were attacks of science and said simply, we deal with faith and that's not knowledge. On the right, it abandoned knowledge because it thought knowledge was works, not grace. And see, these are just huge, hopeless assumptions. But in the process of the 1800s mainly, the defensive, the church became defensive and decided uh, to win the battle by abandoning 
the fort. And uh, that's a, an expensive strategy. And we, we are now paying the price for that. That's why I tried to emphasize in, in the talk earlier that, in fact, uh, if you go back not very far, uh, you will find people who would just be astonished that people oppose knowledge to faith. You don't have to go back to Thomas Aquinas. I mean, if you just read the standard old theology of people like the Hodges or Augustus Hopkins Strong or others, those are American names, sorry about that. I know you have similar things here. You will find that they just assume we're talking about knowledge. Okay, I'm going to take uh, two more questions. I think there's one behind me. Yeah, there's one here. How do we engage with the world in sharing this knowledge when the world looks around and sees that we are, we're not actually in agreement about knowledge? It's very inconsistent. Is God for women priests or not? Is God for homosexuals or not? We, it, it really is confusing for people out there because we are so inconsistent about this knowledge. So how do we engage in this kind of scenario? Does someone else want to talk? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm it's willing to talk, but I just feel like... There's always a good moment, isn't there, when yes, you have to pick please. up the ball and uh, you, you kind of go, right, so uh, women priests, right. Uh, no, um, I understand the point of the question. I think it is about questions. It is about getting the questions asked in the culture rather than us forcing an agenda there. Uh, um, let me see what I mean. When Jesus is in the temple, I'm always impressed as a, as a boy, they come back and uh, they, they declare that this is a, a genius, that he has remarkable knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the knowledge is from the questions that he's been asking them. And I think that if we can take the story that we have, the scriptures, into the culture in a way that asks questions and stimulates the discussion, we are removing ourselves, I hope, in the right way from kind of the slightly arrogant position of saying, uh, you know, we've got the answers. Because we, we, my mates know that, that Christians really know they have the answer, but they just, they just are always a little bit arrogant about it. Due respect to any church leaders here who have those fluorescent signs outside the church. But the hunch is that the witty humor that you have behind your fluorescent sign is, we got the answer. <laughs> And we actually, it isn't quite the way we need to ask the question out there. I think it needs to be taken into the, the main place. Um, this is a very self-indulgent illustration, but we have, uh, we've got a play out at the moment, which is with a non-faith-based theatre company who, who are telling the story of Ruth. And uh, when I approached them, they were doing Romeo and Juliet. They were doing Shakespeare. And I asked them, had they ever thought about doing the Bible? They said no. When, when they thought we might have money, don't know why they thought that, but uh, <laughs> they came back and said, okay, what would we read? And there were two women in the company, so I suggested Ruth, who I, I'm not quite sure where I got that, but I think it probably was a God idea rather than a good one for me. But um, they read Ruth, and I said, ah, what did you think of it? Because we sat in a theatre in Salford, and they said, not a lot, actually. Um, but we, so we read it again, because they were really keen on the money idea. And... Um, <laughs> They said, we think it's about, women of not, uh, it's about women who are migrants and asylum seekers. So we always like to develop our plays in communities. So we'd like to run some workshops with women who, who didn't start in Britain. They were, they're migrants or asylum seekers. 
and they just happen to be living here. Okay? So uh, we said, okay, you can go and do that, and paid for various artists to workshops, and they worked with various groups, and they met with these women who hadn't started out in this country. And the interesting thing was that as they all gathered together to read this story and ask questions about it, and what did it remind them of? What was their homeland like? Why had they traveled? What were the emotions? What were the questions that the characters faced? Every one of the women, whatever their faith and whatever their nation, kind of said, you know, this story is our story. And that was the moment at which the women came back to me and said, that's when this story came alive for us. Thank you. Uh, I think one more question over in the far. Thank you. Area. On the basis that um, confession is good for the soul and, the, and that the Irish are often troublesome, <laughs> um, I have to confess that I'm the one who asked the second question, but what I would like to follow up with is whether any of you think that the current trends in evangelism militate against the connection of faith and knowledge? We're just deciding. Uh, okay, the question is coming back, which trends? Could you respond to that? What, sorry? Which trends? Well, the... The, the, the packaging of evangelistic programs, the, um, the come to Jesus, just love Jesus approach, in other words, the reductionist approach in evangelism, or, or, the, or the simple enthusiastic approach in evangelism. Okay, thank you. Let, let me just say briefly, and then I, I'm not for sure about theos, theology. I, I'll just say this. Most evangelism currently is severely misguided because it attempts to get decisions instead of bringing people to conviction on the basis of knowledge. I don't know that this has any particular relation. This for me goes way back because I'm an old guy and I know what evangelism has been in the past and beyond my own age and it is it is not a good way to bring people to Christ as disciples to simply work to get them to make a decision so I think that's a, a part of the really deep problem that is rooted in this public private issue also I don't know if that responds to your question. We should hear from I don't know about the current trends, but I can tell you what we're doing that works. One of them, the things we're doing, is actually taking what we know about God onto the street with an invitation to passers-by in town centre Reading uh, to be prayed for for anything they would like. That's quite a scary use of our knowledge that God loves us and answers prayer. We're not trying to get them to, to make a decision. We're actually literally trying to serve them yes. with the grace of God. And that is profoundly touching lives. Mm -hmm. It's most profound when we had a Hindu who's going off to uh, India to be with his father who is dying 
and he said, please, could uh, we pray for him? And, um, uh, and we did, and he went over, and his father had recovered from the time that we had prayed, and he told all his family out there it was because of this weird church in Reading that his father was better, and he came back and told his friends in Reading. So he had made a, a link between what had happened um, on, on a street and, and that life event. The other thing that we're, we're doing is using the Alpha course that many of you know, which is a friendship, it's a relation, you belong before you believe um, approach to, to um, the, the faith. And, and there's something very strong about that, I think, mm -hmm. because you come through belonging into a knowledge of God and, and then you make a response to him. And I think the thing that we most need to rediscover, and, and, and probably in the West, is the power of the Bible. I think we've lost sight yes. of the fact yes. that God's word actually mm. has a, it's, he, he has breathed it. It's almost countercultural to say that. It sounds almost anti-intellectual. But it is true. And in the rest of the world, where people are discovering or receiving or reading the, the Bible, it is a life-changing force for them. It's been that here. Um, and and um, there's a celebrated story of the young Welsh girl who walked 25-odd miles to, to get her Bible. And it's been in deeply ingrained into our own spiritual history. But there's something there that we must rediscover, and that is the Word of God has it has power to transform life. Why? Because it conveys knowledge. And in knowledge, one of the things they say about Jesus is, uh, and they talk about him, is what authority he had. And where did his authority come from? And love to hear more about this. I'm sure it came because he knew. Not in his head, but he knew. He was in line with the Father. There's something very profound there. And if we are to represent the King of Kings, we must get back to church not being what we do so much out there, the esoteric stuff, but to knowing, to being back in love with God. And we must be in touch with him. I'd just like to thank the panel and, and thank you for your questions. I'm really sorry. There's uh, quite a number of questions that were texted to us. I know we didn't get to those, so I apologise for that. Um, but we've got a couple of minutes, James, just to Fine. mention a couple yeah, of books. Yeah, on the bookstall, um, just to remind you about a couple of things on there. Um, there is obviously the book of the day, which is the personal religion public reality, Dallas's book, um, which is such a help. And many of the issues we're talking about are explored in that book. Um, we... we um, we're very aware that this book will help us in terms of understanding the case for um, Christianity and how to know God better for ourselves. And things like miraculous events are explored in this book, which I think to have a philosopher's understanding of that experience is a really, really helpful insight because I come from an experience where those are things which are anti-intellectual. You know, it's almost 
you that in the, the character of them is you can't understand them, and he goes into that in a, a helpful way. Um, the pastoring the world, the role of the church comes in at the very end. This concept on Bible society is very very interesting to the pastoring of peoples, not just the flock in my church, but the they. The country, um, the wider public, the square, and he drops some remarkable bombshells, as so often there are in his books. Um, um, God uh, loves all people and is involved with everyone. That's the sort of the bombshell you get. I mean, when you see that, you think, well, of course, but why didn't I think of that? God loves all people and is involved with them. We kind of mm -hmm. feel it's an exclusive thing for us. Now we have choices on that, what we handle that, how we handle that, but remarkable material here. Was any of that what's in the book, Dallas? Have no, I said anything no, right? you were right on. Um, the, the idea of the pastors being the teachers of the, the nations, nations. Yeah. comes straight out of Jesus' great commission. Yeah. It's, and it's the only hope of the world, folks. Yeah. <laughs> and history would indicate that oh, as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. The other book to refer to is this book, uh, Life... Uh, 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 yeah, the Life uh, 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 book, Streams. Um, it's 25 uh, years since uh, Richard Foster and others came up with the concept behind this book. And the, the, that book that was out originally has now been, we've worked on it and edited it for our day. It's a little shorter than the old one. It's been um, styled for a British audience and it's done in association with our work here, and it sets out the balanced uh, vision and practical uh, strategy of following Jesus. So that's all of Jesus rather than one element of him, and it's a practical book. It's the how you step further in, the thing I said early on. It's the how to get further on. If you want to become more in his image, to get Jesus more into you, start actioning the things that you know, he did and trying to understand that. And this book will help you in a group to step further in. Um, many of us here have been in this experience and I've been in these things for a long time, but both of us have experienced it. Uh, Sandra's been in a group. Uh, Caleb's been in a group. Um, there's others here. I can see you all, all here. This has been a whole. This has been a wonderful thing to hold us as we step further in to follow him. It's here on sale. Never been out in the past in this form. So this is a great opportunity to, to get into that book too. I've, I've skipped one, and yeah, you're going to pick okay. it up. You're the boss. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I've got two books here uh, by James Bryan Smith, uh, who's also involved in the Livestream's original 
uh, book as well, very much so. Yeah. Um, the Good and Beautiful God is part of the Apprentice series. Um, the Good and Beautiful God is, uh, is the first book, uh, focuses on the character of God and looks at some of the false narratives that people have about God and how we can move into a life of intimacy with God. Uh, the Good and Beautiful Life um, brings us into the kingdom of God and focuses on inward character. Both of these books have what James calls um, soul training exercises um, connected to them to embed uh, what you learn. And, uh, and both um, books have uh, questions that can be used for individual, sorry, individual reflection or for uh, group discussion. And I believe there's a third book out in this series, isn't there, called The, uh, called the Good and Beautiful Community, which I believe is out in September. And if you look at the front cover, uh, Dallas writes, this is the best practice I've seen in Christian spiritual formation. The Good and Beautiful Life and the Good and be- Beautiful God. the local church through a period of studies and this is what he calls a curriculum for Christ-likeness and the important thing to know is it is tried in local church settings it is workable it brings tremendous results 